Okay, welcome to uh, Catalogs and Noise again. Today we are talking about the Eumaeus chapter of James Joyce's novel Ulysses. I'm Joe. I'm here with Dave, Josh, Tom. All right. One thing that has never been said by any human <laughs> is the Eumaeus chapter is my favorite chapter of Ulysses. It's never been said. Yeah. Is that in the in the book over back there? Do they talk about that? <laughs> it's never been said. You know why? Because this is a snooze. <laughs> like, all right, if, if I have to... Um, this is your least favorite this chapter? This is my least favorite chapter. Wow. What's your second least favorite chapter? Um, Hades was boring to me this yeah. time around. Um, and all right, so, so I don't think that's like a newsflash. And I get it. It's brilliant literature or whatever, but... I don't know, I found this so long and unpleasant to read for a lot of it. And I, I know Josh is going to say, he's going to say, yes, this is the design. <laughs> but at what point does that excuse, like, the experience? I mean, if Joyce is trying to willfully create an experience that's unpleasant, well, he succeeded, but I don't like it. Like, I mean, like, that doesn't make me step outside of the reading experience and go like, oh, but I appreciate that aspect. Right? I mean, the thing has to be readable to a certain extent. And look, I mean... I got a real high tolerance for some avant-garde bullshit. You know what I mean? But I, I don't know. Uh, all right, defend this. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Would this be considered avant-garde bullshit? It seems like it, it's more straightforward than any chapter. Well, that's it's interesting. Re- it's really <laughs> the pacing that's, that's just, you know, because you're used to uh, the avant-garde bullshit yeah. with the explosions in every other sentence, and it's it's just so off the wall. This is different. No, but I'm a, I just meant the idea of like this kind of meta critique of you're supposed to be exasperated. So yeah. therefore the plot, the, the, yeah, the novel's yeah, yeah. working. You know what I mean? I, but no, you're right. Actually, yeah. this is the most conventional chapter. Maybe I thought right? I said, Joyce doesn't give a hell what you think. I don't think he does. <laughs> this is more evidence for that. We talked about that in Hades. And I think again, in West Dragonians, he don't give a shit. He, right. He's doing him. And that's, that's what this is all about. You derive no pleasure in, in, in. I mean, you already made my argument for me, so why should I even begin? But um, you derive no pleasure once you know, like when you read this, right? It's you, you get the sense that this is this is Bloom. Like Bloom has Bloom has taken over. Bloom victorious. Bloom, you know, rises from the ashes of Cersei. And I, can he I be honest? I don't narrative. know that I see that. I, I've heard the I heard the critique of it that explains it, but I don't know that I see that. I don't know how you don't see it because when you when you read the narrative and then when you read Bloom and you have the exact same ellipses, the exact same broken down thoughts, the exact same you know, it's so abundantly clear to me that this this is when like when Bloom says at one point, which is one of the funniest lines in the whole novel, you know, maybe I really could get my thoughts about this. You know, here we are in the Catman yeah. Shelter. You know, I could title it like Philip Beaufoy's, you know, you know, what does he call it? Something my experience in a Catman Shelter. And it's 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 hilarious because you realize, oh my god, that would be a nightmare. And then you realize, oh my god, this it. it's this. This is it. And so, I to me, I find those things funny. Like right, I find so, when when I see like the design for it, when I see that like those those irritating um, sentences that never end, yes. those irritating interruptions, those irritating parentheses, the constant praeteritio, where it's like not to mention this, and then he mentions it. The unnecessary repetitions, even the clumsy sentence structure where you have the, and, you know, the point was that the point was actually dull. It's like, oh, gosh, and the the avalanches of cliches, the avalanches of metaphors. Um, You're really rooting for the Bloom-like character, but at the same time, it's like the parents in the Charlie Brown episodes, (laughs) wah, 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 because 
everyone else is fatigued. Steven is listening to this. Steven is fatigued. I, I find, I, I find this completely pleasant in its difficulty because it's capturing all of that. It's totally successful. You don't have to enjoy it in the yeah. sense of it's, it's applaud. Like it's really difficult to get through this because it is so tedious. Like those sentences just don't end and they often spin off in directions that are like very clumsy right. and don't finish. But like putting that together and achieving that is tremendously pleasurable for me. But it's not fun to read. I'll grant that. But you see, your criticism seems to be, ah, you know, I don't, Joy shouldn't have done that. That's the, you know, no, I don't no, have no, to no, enjoy no. right? You know. Wait, by the okay. way, Josh probably has the highest tolerance for tension out of all of us, right? I mean, he feels like, I feel like he could put up with Artistic a tension? Yeah, or, or just, no, in life. The tensions of like life. Tensions of life, okay. yeah. That's probably true. Josh yeah. probably yeah. handles it and can take more oh, than I think the rest oh, of us. He's an anxiety-ridden <laughs> person. <laughs> you always say that, but no, Dave's right. You are, the, kind of you right. are the most even-keeled, kind of, kind of, you know, go with the flow. And uh, that's all complimentary. By the way, you might think that you're, like, not put together yeah. but we're really <laughs> fucked up you know that's the difference hey, particularly man you gotta, I, inside his head it's nightmarish all right what were you going to say back to your point i, I like three things to say all right number one so when i was talking about the criticism of this i was purely talking about stylistic experience right the aesthetics of it now in terms of the uncovering of information you know particularly on a first read I understand why this chapter needs to be here. I understand, like, you know, we learn a lot of interesting information about, you know, the day and, you know, particularly the uniting with Stephen. This is, you cannot have the book successfully play out without this. I totally understand that. I'm strictly talking about the stylistic choices being made, right? And it is my own personal aesthetic that, you know, the art needs to be somewhat enjoyable, right? It, it needs to be pleasing. Salo, the movie. Uh, which is, I, I have a is, great admirer of. Which you, I was just about to say. <laughs> right. Anyone that's seen Salo knows that it is probably the hardest movie to watch because of the horrific depictions of cruelty to man against, you know, man saw, against the world, man against man. It's, I've seen it once and it took me four different sittings to get through the whole thing. Cause I but your argument is that there should be, <laughs> the art should be pleasurable. So here's, so, so my, my argument on Solo, <laughs> no, well, no, he's, he's got a good point here, yeah. but my argument on Solo is that the message is so important that, um, that it, it needs to be tolerated, right? Because I think he actually, it's a, it's a brutal movie. It's not a movie that is, you know, titillating for the sake of it. So couldn't I make, couldn't I make an argument? So you're, you're out there. Your dodge is that because the message is so important. <laughs> dodge. It is. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a dodge, well, right? You're I, making, I didn't get to right. So can I? No, I, I think I think it's a valid dodge, but it is a dodge because you know it's certainly not a pleasurable experience watching that. Can't you say with this that my dodge is that I am very enamored of the skill that has gone into creation. It's hard. Look, it's very easy to write poorly and not be aware of just how poorly you're writing. Right. I think it is incredible that this works as a chapter that is irritating without always realizing why it's irritating. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not written where you read it like, this is the shittiest writing I've ever read. No, of course not. It's written in such a way that you, you feel fatigued reading it. Like I feel like Steven there 
listening to Bloom going on and on and on, and I'm feeling a little, like, irritated and whatnot. But then I'm also feeling tremendous sympathy for, for Bloom. This is Bloom at his most excited because you have finally the meeting. Like, Bloom, uh-huh. Bloom gets so much satisfaction being able to converse with somebody. Well, he's someone listening to him. Yeah, it's not a great conversation, but Bloom, Bloom's feeling it. And every, like anything that you read about this talks about, you know, oh, the fatiguing narrative, the, just how, um, you know, it's it's tired, 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 every way getting in. And and it's, it's correct. That is correct. But never has Bloom been more solicitous more aware of what's going on, more excited. His utopian ideas, right? He's, his mind is working. Like the yeah. whole world is falling asleep and fatigued. Bloom is coming to life after, after Cersei, like after that, that, okay. you know, experience that he's had a rebirth and think about it, this is the Nostos. This is the return, the I, conquering I, hero. I totally get and so, but, but let me finish. Okay. There's a humor in this because Bloom, the conquering hero is surrounded by, you know, these, you know, these, this language that is completely irritating. It belongs in like some provincial newspaper or something. Yeah. You know, there's these hackneyed metaphors and cliches that are abounding in every sentence. The use of the foreign expressions to try to get a sense of intelligence, which comes off completely wrong. Bloom himself is mistaking, you know, the beautiful sounds of Italian when it's fact people, right. you know, complaining about money and speaking of like the horror of the Virgin Mary, you know, give me the fucking money. And he thinks it's poetry. There is a comedy in this. And the fact that the whole episode ends with the two of them being married in their low back car, you know, like a popular song. Joyce is having tremendous fun, I think, with what should be the crux of the novel. Stephen and Bloom finally together communing. And it's 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 anticlimactic in a funny sort. All of that gives me tremendous pleasure because of the, the fun and fun. Like you have to work through it. Okay. You know what I mean? But it's it's worth it, and I get tremendous pleasure from it. All right, so I get it. So what what I was implying, right, in, in when I was saying, like, solo works because the message, you know, underlying mm-hmm. is more powerful than the uh, the horrible aesthetics, right, that accompany it. I guess what I'm saying is this doesn't live up to it as the best of Joyce does. And, this, and it's the same argument I had again about Les Shurgonians, right? That Les Shurgonians had this potential to do something with the narrative that was more interesting. Um, right, the, the, the what, 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 I'm not gonna, the digestion kind of... Um, peristalsis. The peristalsis <laughs> sensibility. Like there was some way that he could have done something like with that, the way he does it with Oxen of the Sun, the way he does it with Cyclops, you know, that is a missed opportunity here. And, and it's particularly, I think, unpleasant because we've already kind of seen this, right? We've kind of seen it for the same reason in Hades. Because things are glum and he's down, the narrative is going to be glum and down too. So what does this, all it does is kind of rehash that unpleasant experience from early in the novel and doesn't do anything new with it. And the best of Joyce is doing something new and unexpected around every turn. But don't you think that's an unfair expectation that with every single chapter he has to reinvent the wheel, right? Well, he does it successfully, like, like one time. What do you do after Cersei? You know what I mean? The world has ended, figuratively and literally, in Cersei. Well, you do Ithaca and you do Penelope. So why not Eumaeus? Because Bloom needs a chapter. Bloom needs to... Like, I kept feeling like I'm going to read it. Bloom has seized the narrative. For better or for worse... 
Bloom has conquered the narrative, and, and <laughs> we are the sufferers of that. All right, I, I need some clarification on Bloom conquered. All right, the so I, I found there are paragraphs where if you took off the dash, Joyce's dash right. of dialogue, it sounds just like the narrative. narrative so you're voice. saying you're saying that the narrative voice, because it's not Bloom is not the narrative voice in I the agree. same way it is in Hades. And what is Cedars? Well, I would say no. I would say that in those chapters, the narrative voice is distinct, right? It, the internal monologue is distinct from the narrative. Bloom's sensibility might be coloring things, but here, more than in any other episode, I think that Bloom's sensibility has total control from start to finish, unless there is another person speaking. I'm not saying Bloom's narrating this chapter, but Bloom's sensibilities. Bloom's manner of speaking, Bloom's precision, mm-hmm. those constant, like, it's this person, and then, like, a, like a chapter later, or not chapter, mm-hmm. but, like, a sentence or two later, oh, no, no, I meant that person. Why does the narrator need to do that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Why is the narrator correcting itself? Is this a common read? Because I, yeah. this, this is, out there is, I mean, yeah. yeah, for the most part. Is this, yeah, like a, this is something that, like, I, I wasn't picking up. I and and my take on that is this this is the hero you know, in the Joycean world, this is the hero conquering. Bloom has seized the narrator, narrative, so to speak, and he's taken over. This, look, Stephen is, is like a, you know, a, um, I don't know what the right word is. He's a dependent in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Bloom has completely taken over at this point. And it's the, I think the anticlimax is meant to be comical. Like, it's meant to be, it's a bit farcical in that when you get to the end and the two are, you know, you, you, you have almost... Like you have like this um, consecration, if you will, of a horse taking three dumps on the road, right. and that's the last image of the two walking off together. I mean, that can't be read, but with you know some chortling. So you're saying, so if Ulysses takes over the Odyssey, right? Um, his rhetoric is going to be highfalutin and heroic in nature, and you know have uh, very clever because that's going to be his personality. The Odyssean character, the Ulysses character, as Bloom takes it over, and it becomes mundane. And that's maybe this is your argument, right? That's my argument. And therefore, therefore, this is a comment on the again on the modern hero, how it's different in nature and becomes ironic and becomes anticlimactic. Right. I'm buying all that. I, I was not picking that up, and I'm probably not picking it up because I'm seeing his vocalization distinct from the narrator. But look, why then signal with the, like the most striking thing, just visually looking down on it are the, right, like the, the ellipsis dots, right? So the fact that you see, even in the narrative itself, like the, what kind of narrator doesn't finish a thought or has bungled syntax and then Bloom himself in his actual speaking to Stephen has the same bungled syntax, the dot, dot, dots. I mean, I started counting all the dot, dot, dots and there's like (laughs) 15 or 16 of them. And then even in some of the things that is said in the narrative, like allusions that are made to like Milton or whatever, they pop up again later. You know, I don't know if the Milton one does, but in Bloom's mouth. So it's, it's hard to determine like who's what's happening here. You know, is it? Look, right? I, I think you're hundred percent right. I'm a little annoyed because this is fucking up my contribution <laughs> to the day, which was who I thought the narrative voice was, which is, well, well, I thought it was like sleepy collective Dublin. Right, <laughs> I did. I, I like that. Yeah, thanks. But is, is Sleepy Collective Dublin so solicitous? Is Sleepy Collective Dublin so um, attentive to detail, like Bloom is, and no one else seems to give a shit? Right? No, no, you I'm, I'm I mean? buying it. I'm yeah. totally. I, 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 
Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's signaled um, by the first letter. I mean, big, big ass letter right on the page, you know, P for Poldy, right? This is Poldy's yep. narrative. Poldy takes over. And by the way, the blending of the narrator and Bloom is also another version of the metempsychosis at work in the text, too, right? You know, he's kind of has a, a new birth of sorts. His voice, but that the narrator isn't Bloom. No, I agree with Joe. It, on that. Right, that it, is I know, definitively is not. It's something else. You call it like a, a Bloom omniscience of sorts. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, well, so if this this is a chapter about synthesis, right? Yeah. That is the 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 plot line kind of thing that's happening. Yeah. Bloom and Stephen coming together finally and communing. Then maybe we could say that it's like whatever. What are you, the arranger kind of vision synthesizing with Bloom in yeah, a way? Like I don't know. Cursory third person Bloom omniscience. Something yeah, like that. We, we shouldn't be, you know, worried about that though, right? Because I mean, think what the hell is Oxen of the Sun then? Like we've already seen these, these shifts, right? We're prepared Oxen, for that, right? I, Oxen of the Sun is the voice of literary history, right? Right. You know, and I guess you could say in the similar kind of mystic way, this is the voice of Bloom. Yeah. All right. I'm buying it. I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that makes it better for me, but I I get it. You know, is it above Hades now? No, <laughs> Hades is cool imagery. And like, like, oh, I, I like this. I like all of it. You know yeah. what I mean? But you know, I think I made the point that it's the third time in the book that I wish there were fewer pages than more. And I think. Once again, I'll, I mean, I, I'm beating a dead horse here, but this is by design because there's a point where it actually says to make a long story short. Right, yeah. yeah. And you realize yeah. it just keeps going after that. There's another point where they're about to get up to leave the shelter, and then somebody starts reading headlines from the newspaper again that nobody seems to care about, don't bear any relevance yeah. to the passage. So he's clearly piling it yeah. on to tire you out yeah. even more. In, in, in an article I found, they, they kind of go through all these things that, that, that draw it out and like really make the tedium sort of punch in the gut. You have extended verbiage, you have redundancy, you have self-contradiction, you have recycled language, you have ironic inflation, you have misplaced phrases, you have uh, 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 p- puns, you have cliches. So when you, when, when you throw all that together... You just got, you do have a, like a, a snooze fl- souffle of sorts, you know? <laughs> is he trying to get people to stop reading the book? Like, is he trying to weed out? <laughs> real test? He's trying to weed out the people? But, like, can't you imagine? Bloom has never had somebody to talk with mm. like this. No, and he's got to right. be so giddy with sure. excitement. Mm-hmm. And so what's going to come yeah. out of him but these these attempts to yeah. impress Stephen with puns, with with you know verbiage, with with thoughts that ultimately kind of like my sentences on this in go nowhere because you're yeah. But not in this narrative. But why not capture it with the narrative voice? Why no, not give that. you that feeling? Give you a right? kind of tonal yeah. sense of it. I get that. And the sad part about it, it it's all falling on deaf ears and none, well, of, it yeah. really, none of it really connects or sticks with Stephen. I know. Just, well, yeah, I, I mean, we're jumping ahead a bit, but I... I uh, I, I found myself very annoyed with Stephen in this chapter. Oh, yeah. He, he, right? He's, uh, he's back to sort of portrait douchiness, I yes. guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I thought, yeah, portrait, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, <laughs> him in chapter five, yeah. you know, being uh, highfalutin and, and pompous, um, even a, a little, I feel, I kept thinking, like, he's treating Bloom like he treated Deezy in Nestor. Yeah. And, and, and like, but no. I love. No, he was polite. Well, 
He was polite okay, to yeah, DZ. That's, that's, no, that's right. Yeah. His thoughts might have been, you know, impolite, yeah. but he was polite to DZ, whereas with the whole, you know, You're right. you know it's even worse. Yeah, you know, everyone to each, like Bloom's really trying to say, look, you know, everyone has a place in, in my utopian society, you know, even the the work of the brain, you know, everybody gets what they want, provided that they're willing to work. And you know, Steven, count me out. You know, like he's he's giving him all these, you know, brusque answers, the you know, you seem to think that, uh, you know, I belong to Ireland, but, you know, Ireland belongs to me or something like that. You know, like yeah, right. he's is you know, even just the, the please remove the knife. It reminds me of Roman history. Like, oh, fuck you. Like, <laughs> I know. Right. He's so unpleasant yeah. in this chapter. You know, I guess we could chalk it up to him being uh, you know, I was say, a drunken mess. Drunk. He hasn't sure. eaten yeah. anything. He's hungover probably at this point. But I mean, I, I feel like but he I feel like that's his nature. I feel yeah. like that, that's, but he he does come alive as the chapter just stultifies us Stephen is coming alive because as they're leaving Stephen's singing Stephen's explaining his interests by the time they get to Ithaca they're actually having conversations so you know Stephen it's almost like he's got this like just he's got to get through the funk of being a you know a a pretentious jerk you know because in this it's pretense like what is he doing trying to pretend you know or not pretend, but like, what? Why is he putting on this front to Bloom? Surely he's going to know that he's he's talking around Bloom when he says things like "remove the knife." It reminds me of Roman history. That's just nonsensical. He's also metaphorically orphaned, though, right? In some ways, like you know, this it, it, he can't just we can't just have him warm up to Bloom so quickly. So yeah. I kind of like that. Like well, I mean, for me, I'm thinking of it as sort of like the evolution of like a child of sorts. Because in the beginning, he does seem like a pouty, snotty little kid, and then he sort of, if this is paralleling some sort of like father son relationship, the, the the maturity eventually blooms or you know comes to fruition at the end of it. Mm. Yeah. All right. One one more thing. Now that my my whole theory is out the window. So. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I noticed about the narration was that I would say it's instinctively not in the same stream of consciousness style as most of the text, particularly chapters like um, Calypso, Lotus Eaters, etc. That it seems to be far more composed, right? And I thought the kind of dodderingness, you know, the, the kind of unfinishedness was that sense of, you know, Dublin pro a pretense, you know, the idea, the, the kind of Dublin that we see in bars where people are pontificating but have mm-hmm. no substance to back it up, looking at the past versus looking at the future, all of that. Um, so I, I'm, so how do we, how do we transfer that to Bloom then? Like, like, I, I think you're right, but I, I guess I'm still having problems settling all this. Don't you feel that the message of what he's saying is so radically different, even in the narrative, than what you're hearing from those blowhards and Barney Kiernan's, you know, in the Cyclops episode, or even what the pseudo skin the goat, skin the, et cetera, say, guy is saying, which skin is just the goat another Murphy are right? examples of that, right? But not Bloom, not the narrative, not what he's saying. What's hard is the way it's delivered, not what's delivered. Everything is so sincere, like right. the whole time. You know, that you're listening to his ideas and whatnot, like how he talks about how he would love to, you know, put a singing tour together. You know, it's always coming back to Molly. You know, I'd love to put a singing tour together. Like, there's nothing, you know, that's like, he's not bloviating. It's just the way that it's delivered, the way that the sentences pile on. It's almost like we're hearing Bloom the way somebody like, you know, the citizen or more sympathetically, like someone like Joe Hines hears Bloom, right? Look, we're all antagonistic to this chapter because it was such a slog to get through. Maybe that's what it's like hanging out with Bloom for 
an hour. And that's, you know, more credit to Bloom and less to us because everything, like the ideas are so sincere. They're yeah, wonderful yeah. ideas. It's just, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing then. I mean, that's why I, people I, don't let them talk. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, when we, when you get to like Molly in Penelope, like the things like, God, like there he's going on and on again about his ideas and blah, 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 blah. You, you get the sense that, man, this must really be what it's like to hang out with Bloom for an hour. But you know what I mean? Like, do you, do you get so what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, you're arguing that this is the inverse of Cyclops narration, right? Where where that was kind of blown up and sounded good. It held no substance to demonstrate what Dubliners are. The inverse is happening here. It doesn't sound great, but it's sincere. Yeah. And that's Bloom. Well, I'm, all right. I'm, I'm yeah, liking we get, you, right? That sounded pretty good. We actually get, so think of, right. like, think of in Circe, right? When uh, Zoe says, why don't you make a stump speech out of it? Right, mm-hmm. and then we get that just lampoon of utopian, the new Blumuzalum. Like we actually yeah. get his stump. Here, you actually get a stump speech, like in a paragraph. Yeah, like, yeah. and it's it's so right. sincere. He's basically saying, "Look, yo, we, we there's always room for improvement. Everybody should have you know enough food to eat. Like everything he's saying is is sounding great. Everything he's saying sounds yeah. like it's all completely falling on deaf ears, including ours. Because as we're reading it, we're like. Oh, um, it's too long. <laughs> and then he hasn't connected with anybody. We've been with him for 17 hours, and this is supposed to be the most uh, uh, you know, intimate of, of connections that he has with people is with Stephen, and it's even falling on, you know, yeah. Stephen's not necessarily yeah. taking it seriously. It becomes like a noise in the street, literally, a boom, mm-hmm. a hell boom, right? In yeah, the, hell boom <laughs> in the newspaper, right? All right, that's good. A couple more things. Um, so the, the Gilbert... Um, kind of schema, right? Has this as narration old versus Telemachus's narration young, right? And I thought that was interesting. Um, that's making more sense to me now that we're putting it in, in Bloom's perspective. Oh, that still worked in my perspective, but whatever, alas. Um, <laughs> so a couple things are happening, right? By doing that, Joyce is lining up the first three and the last three stories, right? And creating that. So everything is like young and innovative when we're in Telemachus and now it's kind of, you know, old and doddering as we're in humans. Doddering experience. I mean, look, Bloom's only 38, but it, it feels, it feels doddering, but it's, you know, it's not the, the dot, the doddering stuff actually comes, I think from the other characters, right? I feel like I'm, I'm trying to explain the narrative voice when I say doddering. All right. Doddering to me, I just feel like, you know, that's like more like DZ. Right, I think you're right in that. I, it's, it's I certainly, I, it's I certainly uncomfortably old, yeah. close. I yeah, think that's maybe, my that's maybe. my discomfort. I think maybe just because I'm older than Bloom, I, I, I feel <laughs> I feel as though this is this is ageist. You're older than the hills, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, you does know, it, doesn't it bug you out that Bloom is older than that we're older than Bloom? Yeah. Not me, man. You're, He's you're the same age, age right? Yeah, man. yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that when I read this, Bloom experience in this guy. Yeah, well, this is probably more to say about like me thinking I'm like 19 or something, yeah. but or it's it speaks to what a century does. <laughs> Have you seen yourself lately? Look, I get it. I totally get it. But the uh, no, you know what I mean though. Like when I read this, I think of a guy that's my elder, a guy that like. I look up to and have no, like, do yeah. not share a cohort. With. Yeah, but, but, but thresholds of change. Exactly. It, I think from, right. from, you know, 1904 yeah. to now are, like, vastly different. I still yeah. wear sneakers, for Christ's sake. You don't think Bloom was wearing some, like, Adidas no. like you got? I don't no. think so, man. He's not fashionable. That's a good point. Josh probably thinks he's fashionable. He's going to yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that for a half an hour. Um, 
that's not a that's not a knock no, no man, man. you taking my book and going but home. given Tom's given Tom's read I think that's right and I think being old is different a hundred years ago yeah, than that's a good point you know yeah. what I mean and particularly from the point of view of like the newness so I thought right. this was interesting because of the 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 avant garde nature of the narrative yeah. right you know the idea mm. that this is actually going back to an older form, you know, because it's denying the stream of consciousness, which is the, the modernist innovation. This is kind of thrown back. Now, I get why, and I think it's maybe just as innovative and sort of given a certain perspective. I'll concede to that. But um, it, Joyce is commenting on this kind of throwback style, this almost like Victorian style. What about the idea that Bloom has a family and, you know, the children piece to it? Don't people who are your age, um, your generation, who have kids and family or who have experienced the kind of pain that Bloom has with the loss of Rudy, doesn't it seem then that those people kind of get ushered into a, a more kind of... Have they, they have more wisdom. They have more life experience in some ways. Than me. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel that way sometimes, you know, that... You know, what have I done compared to something like what Bloom's done in 30 well, years? He's lived How more. old's Millie? 15. 15. So, uh, you know, how, we're not having kids when we're 23 for the most part. Forever. So, yeah, yeah forever. Like, <laughs> like we're yeah. sitting around here. So, I mean, it allows us to be in that arrested development for I, an extended period of time. I agree. I think it's less about Bloom and more about you. That, well, no, I, I, I think it's. Oh, all right. I think Tom's right too. <laughs> Thresholds have changed, and yeah, none of us have kids. So, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's look, even the people I know that are my contemporaries that have kids, though, seem way younger than Bloom. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. No, it, if we had kids, this podcast would we wouldn't be doing it. That's what I'm saying. This podcast is my baby. Oh god, <laughs> you like that? <laughs> Waiting for the metempsychosis on that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> all right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so uh, the other thing I had questions. This is my last. Then this is my last thing I had questions on. So in in Elman, right? He, Elman talks a lot about the Homeric analogy in this and the idea of the doubleness, right? That um, and I got to tell you, like it sounded really good on paper. I don't know that I experienced it while I was reading. I like well, as Elman points out the examples. I go, okay, okay, I see that, I see that. But um, I don't know that it's it wasn't stylistically as visceral as some of the other things where I was. I was like, oh, that's so clever. Like it doesn't drive the narrative. It's yeah, peppered in. Like oh, that's right. Parnell did use aliases, so I guess that's on that theme. Or just Parnell used aliases. But there's other things like L. Bloom becoming Boom. Yeah. Uh, Murphy, who really is yeah, Murphy? Is, and and the idea of Murphy, you know, Murphy is like, might as well be Smith or might yeah. as well be yeah. no one, right? Like right. the Odyssean idea. And skin the goat's not really skin, skin the goat. Skin the goat, right. It's in there. I mean, that's actually a big <laughs> part of it, right? Like they, you know, it, skin the goat becomes more than just skin the goat. It becomes skin the pseudo, skin the et cetera, yeah. like narratives, you know, rather. You know, ideas and disguises start morphing. You know, explain that to me. Why is the skin the goat skin the goat? Because he's that, not, they, he looks like him. Everyone, like, for example, there's a guy that looks like the town clerk. But they call him skin the goat. Well, I mean, Bloom, in, the, in, the, in the reality of does. the narrative. No. No, they don't. No, because he's not. It's he's not Fitzharris. It's Bloom that? that thinks that there's the rumor that that guy really is Fitzharris. 
But no, you'll notice nobody in the dialogue ever identifies him as such. In fact, one of the Jarvis is in there actually says, oh, that's why they thought the Invincibles uh, you know, were foreigners yeah. because they used knives. I mean, if they thought Fitzharris was one of the Invincibles, it would have been like, oh, we thought you were you know, a foreigner. You know what I mean? All right, here's the problem with that. And, and I'm, again, I'm probably wrong. I'll concede before I even say it. But I believed in the authority of this narrator in a way I didn't in the earlier stream of consciousness narrator. But it makes mistakes. Well, so you say, but, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't get that naturally as I was reading the text. As it's, well, no, I don't think ever, ever does the narrative say that that man is skinned to go. Well, by calling him that so it's always casually. No, but it's never casually. It's always qualified. It's always it skin the goat or whatever, yeah. or pseudo skin the goat, or Fitz Harris, or he's probably not even. Like, it, it, almost uh-huh. every time it's qualified. And it's Elman, right, who posits, like, Murphy is the uh, Homeric Odysseus. The the pseudo-Ulysses. Well, because remember, when when Odysseus comes to Eumaeus' hut, he's got a whole cock and bull story that that goes on and on in in the Odyssey. It's all lies. It all comes from him having to disguise himself like this theme. Yeah, I get that. But at the same time, you're getting Bloom, who's talking about not traveling. So you get, you get the opposite. I guess, you know, he's downplaying his sort of sense of adventure simultaneously, right? Yeah. In, in this yeah. chapter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Bloom so. actually says at one point that he's a born adventurer. Bloom's narrative, the narrative says he's a born adventurer, though he, by fate, or metempsychosis, if you will, <laughs> is bound to be a landlubber. You know, it's almost like in another age, he really was the wild adventurer. But uh, yeah. That's good. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, I guess I just wasn't excited enough to really get into this one the way... I did in the other, like seriously, I couldn't put the book down, you know, even Ox in the Sun this time, which I was kind of, uh, maybe not even looking forward to because I've been beat by it so much. Like as I was getting into it this time, I loved it. And so, so why at this point do we need this kind of shift? Is it just to get at the tiredness <clears throat> of night, I guess? I think that's part of it. Yeah, I guess part so, right? of it is like, what do you do after the climactic moment you had a resurrection of a you have the, the saving of a son the resurrection of a son you have the world end and then this is the aftermath the aftermath what happens when the hero you know prevails this is what happens we get a chapter yeah. written by bloom yeah, i mean why, why like call that. it out midway through the chapter where he actually says you know maybe i could write about this experience my experience in a cabman shelter i mean that's that's probably the most meta Joyce is in this, of pointing out, look, here, the game's afoot. This is a chapter written by Bloom. I mean, I know it's not, but so, that's what it feels like. So am I supposed to think it's like a Pyrrhic victory then? Um, I don't know. I've got more hope. I mean, the fact that the fact that in you know society like this where Stephen has nowhere to go and is really just a hair's breadth away from becoming someone like Corley. We haven't even talked about no, that. No, no, I know. We'll Corley from The Two Gallants shows up. Um, you know, he's a hair's breadth away from that kind of life. And he takes refuge, even if not for the whole night, in the company of Bloom, a man he barely even knows. And we don't ever know what ultimately Stephen is going to take from this. We do know, though, what Bloom gets out of this. We know that Bloom's mind becomes so agile. Bloom is never more relaxed and excitable, I think, than these last, or at least the two chapters, this and Ithaca. You know, Stephen, we have to assume, I mean, I know it's getting outside of the text, but one almost imagines if Stephen is going to go on to become that artist, then this is the product. Like, he needs to experience oh, a yeah. man like Bloom in order to create something like Ulysses. Yeah. I mean, I know that's jumping out of the novel, but that seems to be the unspoken 
takeaway that Stephen gets out of this. It, it's it's clear to me that part of Joyce's kind of uh, meta approach to writing is to incorporate his own publication history into it. I mean, that's why Corley is here. And, you know, I guess let's talk about Corley now. You know, the idea that Stephen gives him whatever, a half crown or something, yeah. is just like the end of uh, Two Gallants. And Joyce is absolutely drawing me back to that point and making me draw comparison. Right. But but I, I qualify your just like. Just like in the sense that it has to do with some sort of exchange, but those are ill-gotten goods in, in no, no, the I two gallons, that, right? Course. But here, I mean, you see Stephen being the profligate slash super benevolent guy that's like he would give his last crowns to a guy he knows is never going to pay him right. back. Also, I like, uh, I think it's uh, Gilbert's read on that whole episode, how you could extract the whole Corley episode and the narrative would still have cohesion because Bloom is talking about the dangers of Buck Mulligan when he's right before Corley and then resumes yeah. talking about Buck Mulligan right after the Corley episode, which is just like several places in Homer and even in Virgil's Aeneid where there are passages mm-hmm. that we think are spurious that were written at a later time and incorporated in there. And you can usually tell that by the bookends of what's being really? spoken up for. So if that's the case, then the character that Corley seems modeled after, who has his own convoluted genealogy in the Odyssey, remember Corley, why is he called Lord John Corley? And then they give that long convoluted genealogy of why he's called Lord facetiously. I like little details yeah. like that give me tremendous pleasure. I mean, yeah, I, that's very interesting. I will not go so far as to say that Eumaeus is my favorite chapter, but I really think that if you're if you're uh, going into it thinking that oh what a slog, I hate this chapter, you miss out on so much that's there that's enjoyable. Watch this, Dave. What's the worst then? The worst chapter. <laughs> I, I don't like. I don't See, like these dodge. qualifications. Talk about dodge. I, I don't. I don't like these chat qualifications. But as far as most <laughs> enjoyable read, uh, this is clearly one of the least enjoyable yes. reads. But the fact that that's by design, once you get into it, like look, when you read something like I probably read this chapter in preparation for this maybe four times, and when you get to know, like when you read it, I'm not saying I have any further knowledge from that experience <laughs> but reading and listening to a lot you you do enjoy it more because you almost own it more and you I don't know I just hate to see the ugly duckling of the book uh, get short shrift although Joyce himself calls the next one the ugly duckling yeah I, I think the next one's great I love it the great, I do yeah. Th- yeah I think alright well we'll get there eventually alright ready to tackle the text a little bit I, I don't think there's <laughs> too many things that I have to talk about right I mean this is fairly Episodic in terms of like not much happens. You yeah, can kind I started of, outlining it and then I just got bored. <laughs> yeah, oh, <you're> bored. <laughs> what do you mean? It's riveting. It's a page turner. <laughs> Look, I get it. This is the greatest novel ever. But if we can't criticize it, like what are we doing? I mean, I'm trying to I'm well, trying to come to every every page as honest as I can. You know, I would never say don't criticize, yeah. but I think I, I just wasn't buying your critique. I, I feel you judge me when. <laughs> All right, here's a, here's a dumb question. Does E.D.Ed have anything to do with UP up? up. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that too. I thought he was just fucking with us again. Yeah, the slang is finished or over and done with, but yeah, it looks like it, right? Right? Hey, I thought there was something going on there. Um, okay. So, what actually happens here? Um, yeah, all the stuff in my notes we talked about. Um, all right, so the actual cab shelter, right? I, I saw, I did a little research on it. 
right? Is like one. It's like a like a an old timey diner in a sense. Right? It's really small. It's like white yeah. diamonds size. Like a white diamond. <laughs> yeah, it's a, but I mean, I think even smaller than that. Yeah, right. You I get the sense these guys are like elbow to elbow with each other. Yeah, and you get like, is it like a counter or are they at like individual tables? I was thinking I about know. that. I picture them as maybe like a couple like two seaters, you know. But I it remember could when be, Stephen leaves. Remember he asked like, "Why did they put the chairs up on the table?" So I I assume that that meant that there were tables there. Yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, so the the people that would be here are marginal people, right? I mean, in the middle of the night, um, or cabmen that are you know waiting for fares in the morning. I mean, it's really like, I mean, Jarvie keeps, the term Jarvie keeps coming what up. What time? Yeah. We, it's around one, maybe? One, around one, yeah. Remember remember the eatery in uh, Two Gallants where he eats his peas, right? Yeah. You know, picture something like that, right? Like a late night stop. Oh, I thought the peas place was, was a couple notches up from this. Oh, us. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get the I, sense that this is meant to be dining at all. I get the sense that this is like a place where keep warm. people don't, that pe- not necessarily waifs and strays, although that is the term that he uses, right? I get the sense that this is where people who actually are employed but have like basically night work or early morning work when they don't want to go home hang out here. I don't get the sense that these guys are homeless. No, no I get I the sense either. that these are like longshoremen, cabmen that have that have well yeah, that well because of their employment. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's I, called a cabin shelter. You know what you know what I thought about? Taxi driver. Yeah. Like you have seen taxi drivers in the last decade? It's been a long time for me, but like, you know, where they hang out, like uh you know, and they have those weird conversations. Like Taxi the TV show? Like, no, no, no. That's like a depot. That's, that's like, like a, a depot. I mean, okay. like, you know, Robert De Niro talks uh, yeah. to uh, Peter Boyle, you know. Uh, yeah, that kind of, I don't know. Um, hey, what happened to Lynch? Where's, do we, does that ever get explained? He's a Judas. He well, he, he left. He runs off with. He, See, left a, he left with Kitty, presumably going back to the brothel because Stephen's already paid. Well, all right. That's why he's Judas, right? He's the traitor, right? So he never makes it out of the brothel. No, he does. And that's what makes him even worse because, remember, Bloom, yeah, Bloom is panicking. Remember, Bloom turns to Lynch and says, look, do something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And Lynch says, look, he doesn't listen to me. I think his response is, he likes dialectic. He doesn't listen to me. Come on, Kitty. And that's it. He's out. And then it says, you know, exit Judas. And then the yeah. Latin says, and he went and hung himself or hanged himself. Right. Um, curiously, the model on which Lynch was based was found drowned in, I think, the Liffey and possibly for suicide. And apparently Joyce took some little pleasure in <laughs> prophesizing that because though Judas went and hanged himself. And lo and behold, I can't remember the guy's name, but was actually found dead in the river. That's pretty dark. It's pretty dark, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to skip to the talk of Simon. You have anything before then? That's, that's I, I feel like I'm skipping a lot. No, skipping's all right. You're, what? You, need, you got somewhere to be? <laughs> you got to get out of here? Um, the conversation... What's the what page? page you on? Uh, 623. All right. Right? The conversation about Simon, um, where Stephen chimes in, uh, I've heard of him. He's Irish. Um, all right, with uh, you know, Murphy brings all, all up, too right? Irish. Yeah. You know, all of that business. Um, I think is interesting, right? Because if I thought of that as maybe the most compelling of the kind of doubleness that's okay. going on, 
right? Simon as the kind, or Simon and Bloom as the kind of doubles of each other in terms of paternity. Okay. Is that what, right? And, and Stephen's kind of um, dismissing of Simon here and his taking on of Bloom, I think is the real synthesis that is occurring in this, right? The real uh, nostros, right? Yeah. That, that, that Eumaeus is all about. Hmm. What was the thing that we talked about the nostros, it was it was much shorter, right? Yeah, in, in the um, in Homer's story in the Odyssey. Um, I don't know. Is it? What, what are you talking? Remember about? when we first started this? I, I think I was talking about. I thought that when when Odysseus returned, he was home for like a year or two. No, no, like he, it's, it was it's, much shorter. Yeah, right? it's a matter of days. One imagines, like it, you know, I don't. Homer doesn't care about telling time. Yeah. You yeah, know, I mean, you yeah. just kind of infer what's happening based on, yeah. You know, oh, look, you know, Don's rosy fingers are there again. So I guess it's another day. Um, but yeah, I get. I've always gotten the sense that when Odysseus returns, he's there and you know has the help of Athena, goes to Eumaeus, and this is all happening within a matter of days. <clears throat> yeah, I always felt it was much longer, but I can't. I remember people people tweeted us the answer. I like, thought some, yeah, someone said something like it was actually like maybe a couple months or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, or I weeks, remember. couple weeks. I, yeah, I don't. I yeah, don't really does, care I too guess it's not. Right. Yeah, but yeah. but uh, why? Why would that matter for this chapter? Um, no, it doesn't. doesn't. I just, oh. I just thought of it when we were talking about Eumaeus. Yeah. yeah. Joe, I find more compelling than the bit here where I mean, I, 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 I love the comment of Stephen. Yeah. Are we all too Irish? I mean, there's so much in that. All right, know, so, so I think I'm maybe burying the lead here. I'm a little, I think I'm kind of digging for the true synthesis of these two, the, the true kind of um, coming together of Stephen and I Bruce. was doing that too. There's, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I had a page, I mean, a couple pages, 643 um, to 645 when they were talking about, I'm sorry to jump ahead, but when they were talking yeah. about, you know, the oppression of the Jews and what Ireland has become and what it means to be a part of it. That to me was like kind of a, like I was looking for that coming together. It felt like they were there was an understanding. There's very little response from Steve. It's yeah. very subtle. Yeah. yeah, it's way subtler than I would expect yeah. in a novel that is building up to this point. I, yeah. I don't. I don't think. I mean, you know, someone makes uh, a big to do about the moment on page six thirty four. This is where ultimately, like they've they've just discussed, like what is the nature of the soul, and this is where their conversation really begins, right? Yeah, right. Where he's, and again, the doubling and mistake and disguising and false identities. I think it might be more pervasive than we were initially saying. You know, Bloom, we forget, keeps mistaking Stephen for being a good Catholic. Right, that's what he keeps saying. He keeps saying good Catholic. And on page 633, like, you as a good Catholic, he observed, you know, talking of body and soul, believe in the soul. And of course, Stephen's going to give his kind of wise-ass answer about, well, here's what Thomas Aquinas says, you know, talking completely over Bloom right. in a condescending kind of and way. That's why I you know, find they tell me on the best authority, it is a simple substance. And of course, he's using an Aristotelian you know, description of simple, but Bloom just hears simple and says, simple, the soul. Oh, well, sometimes you meet a simple soul. They're, they're talking around each other. But then at that very moment when Stephen's talking around him, this is once we get past the Bloom's, I mean, Bloom's really trying to have an intelligent conversation with him saying, look, all that stuff you're saying in scripture, you know, look, I think it's the same thing with Bacon and Shakespeare, like who really wrote what? 
And then he interrupts himself with something that is infinitely more important than the conversation they're having when he says, and this is where we start seeing Bloom as the father even more so, can't you drink that coffee, by the way? I mean, he interrupts himself. Can't you drink that coffee, by the way? Let me stir it and take a piece of that bun. It's like one of the skipper's bricks disguised. Still, no one can give you what he hasn't got. Try it. I mean, he's really trying to help Steven. Steven's simple one-word response is, couldn't. Stephen contrived to get out his mental organs for the moment, refusing to dictate further. But ultimately, he does get him to eat and to drink. Mm-hmm. After all this, this is what the argument of uh, Dylan Keybird in his book. He talks about he, the whole time that he's describing all of these these you know consecrations that have gone through these false consecrations, starting with Mulligan and the Mass that begins the whole book. Here's where we get it. You want communion? Here's a real communion. Here's the body. That's here's good. the blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was I was I'm really taken yeah, with that yeah, argument because yeah. at this moment, Bloom just brushes away all the stuff they're talking about. Says, "Eat this. Eat this." And Stephen, who's been rejecting the whole idea of taking the Eucharist, you know, almost as though if I if, the, if I'm going to take the Eucharist, it has to come to me. Well, here it is, kid. You know, take this. And then from this moment on you do start seeing a little bit more give and take so that by the end of the chapter, Stephen has warmed up. Now, of course, this moment, this moment that should be sacred, even from a non-religious point of view, just symbolically, is ultimately, he's got a brick of a bun, you know, coffee that is not even going by way of coffee, right? More disguises there. And so in this extremely banal atmosphere, you have a real communion finally. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Mm. I think that, that's really clever. Mm-hmm. I think so if you're looking for like synthesis, as you keep saying, I mean, I think we're starting to see it here. Yeah, this, and this is what we're going to get. We're not going to get more than It's not going to get better than that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the thing. It, it's, it's very anticlimactic. I mean, we keep using that, going back to that word, but I don't know how else to describe it. You know, there isn't a, a hug. There isn't, you know... A, you know, but there is a handshake. By I mean, sure. by 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 the time Ithaca is concluding, when Stephen is about to exit, I mean, you, and we know that's that's important because Stephen doesn't touch people. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not Odysseus and, and, and Telemachus, though. Yeah. You know, there is no embrace. Exactly. Every, everything's subtle. Everything's exactly. muted. The, the thing is, when Odysseus returns home to Ithaca, you know, that's anticlimactic too, because you want him to kind of storm in. And take over the place, but, but he can't do that. But the union with with Telemachus is a little bit, you know, it's emotional. That's emotional. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where I'm going for with, with this. Yeah, I, this is intellectual, right? The, the, they're communing in the idea of having yeah, but, intellectual companionship. But Odysseus and Telemachus were real father and son. These guys are not, right? So what's real? Well, I, I, I mean, I think Joyce has to prepare us to receive that. You know what I mean? You can't have. Stephen just kind of wildly warm up to him. It, it becomes too sentimental, you know. It becomes, yeah. you know, too easy to do that. Well, I'm not suggesting this is the wrong choice. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand it. I think yeah, you're yeah. right. These yeah. last three chapters are an attack on sentimentality. I mean, they really, yes. I mean, I- Ithaca, really, you know, very ostentatiously so in the question and answer format is stripped of all emotion. But the thing is, what's so effective is they're there. I mean, like. I, I really get, I well up during some passages in Ithaca, and it is like the way yeah. it's written, it's just like, what did he do next? He did this next. What happened then? And and yet, what's not being said is so moving. All right, so let me, I, I think you're right. Why is that? Why are these last three chapters, you know, so unsentimental? Because I get that for Stephen, but this isn't Stephen's book, it's Bloom's book. 
Bloom isn't the anti-sentimentalist. In fact, a lot of what he says is quite sentimental. Yeah. Why are we not leaning into that if I'm Joyce and playing up that kind of, you know, uh, anti-hypermasculinity that is defining the era, right? Which seems to be what he's doing everywhere else. So why not, why make the tone almost, you know, obtuse in that way? I don't know, because then you get something like Nausicaa. And I think that the fact that this is having an effect on me as a reader, you know, when I read Ithaca, this is not happening in Eumaeus. I'm, I'm really searching for it in Eumaeus. Yeah, I don't think it exists. But I think the fact that it builds to what ultimately will happen, the fact that they do leave arm in arm from the cabman mm. shelter is a major accomplishment. It's uh, a yeah. triumph, yeah. especially after the, the torpid prose that we've been reading for, for Eumaeus. Uh, Ithaca, I think, actually works in that unsentimental way because I'm providing all of that human warmth from my knowledge. After spending this much time in this novel, by the time we get to Ithaca, we're getting the facts that we have been looking for that have been hinted at or have just kind of bubbled to the surface of Bloom's consciousness. We're getting them in that kind of bare fluorescent light of a question and answer, yeah. you know, catechism, if you will, that all the, all the humanity is, is with me, the reader. And I, you, you don't need it there. Like it's, now, the, I, I very, get that. a very simple very answer, good. though, to your question of why strip it here, it was, at least according to Joyce, the choice of how do I slaughter the suitors? How do I, who am ultimately a pacifist who detest violence, how do I do it? I'm going to slaughter sentimentality. I'm going to slaughter emotion. Those, la- that, those last few chapters of the Odyssey, particularly the one where they slay all the suitors, and then also slay the, all the, the women. All the women. Yeah. It's really hard to read. Yeah, I mean, awful. the funny thing is, it's it's super easy to read. It's in the Odyssey, yeah. but like when you actually think about it, yeah. it's it's so gruesome that this this is the sacrifice. This is the slaughter. All right. So what? Something's going to be sacrificed along with that as a reader, and it's. I think it's going to be the kind of the feeling that comes Bloom. from the synthesis yeah. and the connection to Bloom. I mean. If you're right, and I think you are, that this is Bloom's mentality that's speaking this, the Bloom I know is going to be far more warm and fuzzy than that is portrayed at the end of Humanities. Okay, oh, respond yes, there real course. quick. If you lean into that and you show Bloom, even, let's say, experiencing joy for the first time, let's say, in, in, in ten chapters, you still have a guy who's not really master of his feelings, right? He's, he's allowing joy to overwhelm him versus the other way around, which would be the despair or the disconnectivity. To have it stripped, as we're talking about, shows that, um, you know, it shows that he can be actually master of, uh, you know, things, uh, of his feelings, of keys. Betty's leaving. Yeah. I to give her keys. Uh, but it shows that he can actually be master of this, that he's, that, that he's not going to let the despair take over him, but he's also not going to let joy distract him for what, you know, he has to do. When... when Odysseus comes back to Ithaca, he has to dis- devise a very specific plan that takes, you know, patience and temperament, mm-hmm. you know. Y- y- what we would want to do is rush in and-, and embrace all of that extra energy. I like that. You know? that's, that's a pretty good read. Also, why do you need the narrative to tell you that the feelings that you can already infer from Bloom? You know what I mean? Like, we know that Bloom's mind at this point is super active and super excitable. We know, even in the question and answer format of Ithaca, that Bloom is on top of the world when he's with Stephen. We know from the question and answer, even from what's unstated, that Bloom is 
so lonely when Stephen leaves, but is still so excited by the idea of this new Bloom, Molly, Stephen, family, or whatever. And then when you hear Molly carping at Bloom in Penelope, like, and he was going on and on about that Stephen Dedalus guy, like, you know, from Molly, who's, you know, she's finding fault with Bloom, but at the same time, she's showing just how excited he was. You know, I don't need a, like an, a triumphant narrative to show me just how much Bloom, like the excitement, you're getting it. You know what I mean? I think the structure then is, I think, supersedes that. I like the idea of Ithaca being this catechism stripped of emotion that I have to supply because I know that it is symbolic of the slaughter of the suitors. I don't think anything's been lost because no, I'm supplying. Ithaca, I totally buy it. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely get that. I guess what I'm afraid of is that it's the reason is why I need that is because I want it to be consistent with the boom I know. And how is this not though? No, and and I'm not even saying that an inconsistency makes this a bad book or something. All I'm asking is, what's the explanation? I think Dave has a very good explanation that I'll buy into that and and make this a richer read. You know what I mean? It, it's not. I think there is a reason, you know, a, a guy way, way smarter than me wrote this, and I'm going to concede that. Uh, I just want to explore it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and D- to Dave's point, there are multiple references in here about the dangers of a return and how you'd better get the lie yeah. of the land first, right? The whole description, like, why is Parnell brought in, other than the fact that it's 1904 and Parnell's still very much fresh in the mind? Well, for the level of narrative, Parnell's another Odysseus, if in fact he is alive. Right, that whole yeah. myth that Parnell is still alive and he's gonna he's come back under false colors. You know, he's like another Odysseus. He's another Rip Van Winkle. He's right. another W.B. Murphy, if you will. Like the whole idea of the he's person return, and then even Bloom is another Odysseus. Not on the obvious ways we've been talking, but remember in Ithaca when or in Eumaeus rather, Bloom says you come back and everything's changed. Right, you don't know where you are. You don't recognize anything. Right. Well, remember in Ithaca, looking ahead, Bloom walks into his own house and bumps his head because Molly's changed all the furniture around. Yeah. So even the very description of he's saying, "Oh, you better be careful when you go home because you'll never know what has changed." You know, in this one day Odyssey. He's become Rip Van Winkle, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Par- return Parnell slash, you know, Ulysses returned. Everything has changed. No, I'm getting it. Right? Yeah. He can't be overly excited about Stephen at this point because he's been burned over and over again all day by people that he's trying to maybe relate to. But I think he, he has to enter this. He has to enter the synthesis with kid gloves. He needs to right. feel it out. He needs to be gingerly because, you know, he can't treat Stephen like he treats Millie. Right. Right. Because... But his excitement is coming through. I think Dave's right on the narrative. I'm, I'm I think the narrative is, is yeah. circumspect. That's where the Whereas temperament you see, is. you see Bloom. I mean, Bloom is also concerned about, you know, perhaps coming off as somebody who's, um, you know, overly friendly in a way that would put Stephen off. You know, why do you think he pulls out that picture of Molly? It's not necessarily, it's not only, let's say, that he has that vicarious thrill of other men admiring his wife, like we've Mm -hmm. talked about. It's also perhaps to say, look, my motives are not, you know, suspect. It's not like I'm trying to, you know, take you home, you know, tonight and, and sleep with you. You know, it's it's that I am merely, you know, I want to show you, I want you to meet my wife. She's interested in music as well. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, think, yeah. I think he, he kid gloves is a good way of putting it, but the excitement of his mind, I think, belies the fatigue of the narrative itself. That has, that has a lot to do with it as well. That makes yeah. sense. 
All right, this is good. I mean, I think I'm getting a much better appreciation for the chapter. I don't know <laughs> that it's making it more enjoyable, but yeah, I get it. Um, so let's talk about uh, Murphy, right? So Murphy is the captain from the boats from Proteus. Yeah, not necessarily the, the captain, the but you know, one of uh, the sail, right? Right. So what are we supposed to do with that now? Because it was so monumental at the end of Proteus, right? It was a giant symbol for Stephen. It was the escape was past those boats or on one of those boats, right? We had those kind of same feelings that we did in, you know, chapter four of, of Portrait at that moment, thinking about, you know, uh, escape and, and the, the possibility. possibilities of life yeah. beyond. But when we meet the guy that's actually on the boat, it's supposed to be a disappointment, right? It's supposed to be, again, another anticlimax to that, to the notions of far-off lands. And yeah, I was reminded of um, an encounter because That's good. You know, the, I get that. The, yeah, the boys have these dreams uh, of far-off lands and adventure, and when they finally have their adventure, it is, you know, it's disturbing, and it is so, it's just distressingly paltry, you know, like th- this is this is adventure. You're meeting this creepy guy that's going to go jerk off around the corner. Dave said it was sex. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got a date. But do you remember something <laughs> stuck with me about that? Because the whole idea of the green-eyed stranger and how, by legend, Odysseus supposedly had green eyes, and that was supposed to be a sign of yeah. you know an adventure. Well, Murphy pulls out those goggles, so to say, and of course they're green, right? And so that made me think, oh, that's right, encounter, right? The same kind of idea. That's good. And then think, so Stephen, when he's on the beach, right, he's looking out, he sees the the Rosavine pulling in, and who knows exactly what his thoughts are, but we're supplying some thoughts there, right? Now, that wasn't all cheery. Remember, there was also the the crucifixion imagery that was almost insufferable, right? But there was the idea of ships sailing in, ships sailing out, and perhaps this will be my, I will go back and, and never come home again, but then when you find out that Murphy and okay, so this is the adventure, this is the, the the Odysseus, and everything he's saying is is coming off so like right out of an adventure book that sounds like it must be false, it's again another one of those disappointments. Right? It's not for nothing that his famous his favorite stories are, you know, the one thousand and one nights, right? right Which are right. told merely for the purpose of passing time, right? Not because of any sort of substance. Well, saving your life too. Saving yeah. your life, yeah. But he's no Scheherazade, right? Right. It isn't um, isn't it also a bit of a critique on like the longing to escape? You know, like this idea that you yeah, think I think that's right. You think like you're, the answer is to get away and to escape, but in actuality, it's about no confronting what's here and turning around and, and moving inward, which is kind of what Bloom does. By the time we get to Circe, we're in that subconscious. That's how far deep we're going into Bloom, right? We're, we're unpacking memory. We're unpacking trauma and pain. That's where you need to be going, not escaping outward to some distant land, but inward to become master of whatever it is that you've got to deal with in there. So, so if Murphy is the false Ulysses and Bloom is the right Ulysses, then the answer is to stay in Dublin and make a better life for yourself and live a nice life and do right that's the opposite of what Joyce actually does mm-hmm. right the opposite right he doesn't do that he goes off and he lives the dream of Stephen so I don't know if it's that pat I, well but don't wouldn't you say I mean look at Joyce's life yeah I mean, in exile it's pretty shitty all the way until the end you know, through he's living in poverty. He's living in. I mean, there's stories of when he had one of his eye outbreaks, yeah. right? Yeah. Of the doctor 
coming into his flat, finding him and Nora on the floor in near darkness with like a near raw chicken that they're like picking the bones from. I mean, you almost wonder that the same, the guy that's writing this, who's the exact same age as Bloom, perhaps is writing this almost wistfully. Like there's a guy that actually made a life for himself in his home that he couldn't do, that Joyce himself could not do. So the message for Steven is stop dreaming about what's beyond the boat and, you know, take up one of these jobs people are offering you. Maybe. Maybe. Right? Because that's essentially what Bloom does. Talk, Talk to a girl. How about it? <laughs> you know, get a girlfriend. Bloom is saying that to him. I, I love the continuation of the Miss Ferguson thing. You remember in Cersei, yeah, he yeah. hears him singing, you know, who will go with Fergus? And he's like, Ferg, now you're Ferguson? And then you remember he actually mentions her as though she exists. Like, ah, if you it would only you know, strike up a relationship with whoever that Miss yeah. Ferguson is. It's the, it's the find a wife, it's work for the paper, or go singing. And, and, and right. that's in Bloom's head. That's that's a part of laying out this for his, his new son of sorts. But, but aren't you getting the feel that Joyce... Right, so, like all the time, is telling Stephen reject those things because those are traps. Now it, the message seems to be a little different now from Bloom's perspective, right? Is that the difference? Yeah, and and, and I yeah. think M- Murphy, being Murphy, this sort of salty, decrepit character whose stories may or may not be true, and if anything, fraudulent. Like the the, the postcard with the picture on mm-hmm. it, like that kind of proves that that he's kind of probably making shit up. Um, it's not that glorious out right. there, you know. Well, I mean. I, I think I got this in Elman, maybe, but um, if he is a false Ulysses, he's the Ulysses of Dante and Tennyson, not the Ulysses of Homer, yeah. right? The, the further adventures of Ulysses, which which uh, both recount, right, where Ulysses goes off uh, and dies, right? Yeah. He takes his right. He he can't stay home because he has too much adventure in his blood. And so he gets a crew together and leaves Penelope again after he tells her he would never do it, leaves Telemachus and goes off and essentially just sails until there's nowhere to sail anymore. I guess those are your options, right? To, to go off and never return or to stay and make a life for yourself. And I guess those are you know ideas that are still being bandied about. I, I don't know that there's a definitive right or wrong by this point in the book. But, but one is easier. Right, escaping's probably easier. Oh, see, I, I think maybe staying's easier. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. I don't but know. Staying and being successful. Yeah. Staying and actually what, what make success? it. Well, I think Bloom. I think Bloom is success. Steven can do that. Steven's aspiring for far more than that, yeah. though. He wants. He wants true. He wants Homeric um, heroism. But he can't. He's put, not, he doesn't want Joycean heroism. Yeah. But Steven can't. Steven can't put it into play. He can't put it into practice. Right. I, I mean, he hasn't know. been able to make it work. Dude's hurting, man. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad sometimes now for Steven. I feel like we cocked out. Well, I think it's, I think it's um, <laughs> equal parts feeling bad for him and being, you know, disappointed by him. Yeah. I imagine that's how everybody in his life feels. I imagine that's how everybody in Joyce's life yeah. felt. Yeah. Right? I, it, it's, it's honest. Yeah. It's an honest assessment of humanity, if nothing else. Hey, this turned out to be pretty good. Um, <laughs> I was just gonna say one other thing about like the false, you know, false uh, Odysseus. I read something that I really liked. I think it was in uh, Burgess' book Rejoice about how when does Penelope stop the deceit of the weaving? It's right before Odysseus comes home. 
right? Where she's weaving and weaving the shroud and the suitors, right? Is that correct? No, one right. of, one well, of the she's amazing doing it when Telemachus goes off. Right, but this, think about it. So the whole Odysseus narrating the adventures, right? You assume that that's happening simultaneously to Telemachus going off and looking for him. So you assume, yeah, this, right. I've always assumed that the Odyssey begins in the same time frame in which it ends, right? Within a matter of days, you know, months or whatever it takes, mm. Telemachus goes to look for his sure. father while Odysseus sure. is in the process of coming home. And so the suitors finding her out, finding out the ruse very quickly, you know, obviously the game's up, something's got to be done, crisis point. And Burgess makes the note, well, the nostos, you know, the return, the last three chapters, all the way up to this point, we've had like a weaving of a tapestry going all mm-hmm. the way up to, you know, Circe, right? It's becoming more and more complex, right? But then you have to unweave it. And that gets woven again. So this might speak to your idea of joy of Joyce having to constantly reinvent the wheel, so to speak, with the excitement of each episode. But then the deception is over upon the return. There are no more disguises. All disguises are apparent. They're all see-through. Everything is revealed. When you read Eumaeus, there are no disguises but the ones that are very obvious. Fitzharris, is it him? No, obviously it's not him. Murphy, that guy's a blowhard. He ain't the real thing, right? All these things are through. And then think, then you get to the catechism where there is no deception whatsoever. And then what could be more austere than a catechism? The completely unfiltered thoughts for an entire chapter of Molly Bloom, mm-hmm. right? And I really like that idea. That this idea. I don't. Who knows whether Joyce had the idea in there? But it does seem to be an explanation of why do we suddenly have no deception whatsoever and just stark narrative after Cersei, after the whirly gig of 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 you know, Cersei. Then we just have staid prose, catechism. And then unpunctuated monologue. Yeah. Like that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think it's great. All right. Uh, next thing on my agenda was the prostitute that pops up, right? I thought that was interesting. I don't really know what to make of it, but it's it reminded me of um, other women that kind of pop into male-centered scenes in Joyce. I'm thinking, right, a girl shows up in Chapter 5 of Portrait, right, while... The boys are talking about philosophy and such. Am I right on that? Yeah, I'm right on that. Don't we have this little? Everyone's looking at me sour. I think I'm right. Um, But more particularly, uh, Telemachus with old gummy granny showing up as well. So I'm not really sure what that is, but it seems to be a recurring motif in Joyce. This idea of like, let's throw women in the mix real quick. Get some reactions. Yeah. And I wonder why two I mean, gallons that happened, right? Two gallons, yeah, in a sense. That yeah. goes kind of prominent. And he chooses the same woman that Bloom saw at the end of Sirens. You know, it's this exact same yeah. woman that obviously knows Bloom and knows Molly somehow, maybe because they lived in that area or whatnot. I don't get the sense that it was somebody that Bloom actually hired. But it is somebody they knew because remember he gets very flustered and hides his face behind the newspaper. So it's a conscious choice, you know, of that particular woman. Yeah, I mean, you. I could, mean, it certainly turns the tone of the conversation to you know prostitution should be right. something that is you know medically regulated and whatnot. More blooms utopian ideas, but it's got to be more than that, right? Yeah, I don't know. I guess yeah. I'm wondering what it is. You know, um, you know, as you were just saying, if Molly is such a kind of integral part to the no stress altogether. Is this maybe like a kind of, um, I don't know, attempt to see like the points of view on female and match them up? And yeah, I don't know, because it doesn't seem very tidy if that's yeah. a good, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Yeah. It is very much like the uh, the milk woman though in Telemachus. You're right on that. Like it's but it's so brief. Like it's yeah. Whereas the milk woman yeah. is an integral part of uh, Telemachus. I don't know how integral it is. Well, in the sense that it's like it, it's they're they're waiting for the milk. The plot wise, they're waiting for the milk. She arrives. It becomes this whole meditation on Ireland. Mulligan has this comical exchange with her. Yeah. Haynes tries to talk Irish to her. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. this is a moment that's almost like blink, you'll miss it. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. Um, the the next thing uh, I just had uh, skin the goat ideas. I, you know, it turns political. Right, and we get you know the the toppling of England and all of this stuff, and I don't know. I guess that is going to reflect kind of the typical conversations that are happening, you know, in these places at these times, right? <clears throat> um, but it reminded me of you know bar talk from earlier. It's it's what's happening in Cyclops. It's what's happening, you know. It gives Bloom a chance to recall his triumph from earlier the day to Stephen. You know, a few times. Well, that's right. I mean, a few times. so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get you know his kind of uh, heroic victory. You know, the Cyclops. So that's right after that, right? Mm-hmm. It's right on the heels of it. Um, and uh, he says something during that. I'm trying to recall right now. That's why I'm I'm spacing. He says that. When you were counting it, uh, I said a Jew like me or about Christ or whatever. And then he even said, even though it's not true, even though it's yeah. not true. And that stuck out to me. I didn't write it down. Yeah. I, yeah. I wonder, here's what I thought. So, I mean, if Judaism is carried on through the mother and we know that his mother was not Jewish, perhaps he's saying that I'm not ethnically Jewish because my mother wasn't Jewish or more simply that he's not practicing. I thought that. Yeah. Either one. But it, it's a strange um, thing to declare. You know, because the book has spent so much time making the argument that he had, does have roots back to yeah. the hmm. Middle East and his Judaism. But does that... It's defined him. Is that following or is that before they've had the discussion of the soul and Bloom's, you know, advocacy of science versus religion? I think that's already passed. So then then, then he might be saying, look, I'm not even, look, I'm not even practicing. I don't right. even, you know, consider myself Jewish, but I still kept the argument to show just how silly this guy is. Well, now that we say, I mean, really, it's other people that define him so fundamentally as Jewish. I mean, probably most, for the most part. I don't know. In the skin the goat part, the shortest chiasmus in the book. He, <laughs> he was he. What do you think? He was he. He was he? Yeah, it comes on page 640. Sounds good to me. Yeah, man. I thought Josh might like that. <laughs> uh, the next thing is you get Bloom's kind of like socialism. Yeah. Like his political outlook. And I don't think we saw this this kind of uh, firmly stated anywhere else in the text, but he's really, he's well, arguing for like a Scandinavian style yeah. modern socialism. Yeah, well, he's got, yeah. he's got a, like he has a near quote from <laughs> Marx at one point. And he's got an economic pragmatism. He doesn't seem to want a break from England, or does it? He seems to express, you know, that we should be more prudent about that. But was what was the other chapter where he was trying to make these political, um, you know, assertions, and and people were kind of blowing him off? Was it sirens? Cyclops. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, it bears full fruit in Circe, where it becomes, you know preposterous but you get inklings of it even in Circe when they're having fun with it but yeah like 643 
Right there's yeah. the stump speech, right? Yeah, right. Six, but, you know, of course, Mr. Bloom proceeded to stipulate, you must look at both sides of the question. It's hard to lay down any hard and fast rules as to right and wrong, but room for improvement all around. There certainly is through every country, they say, our own distressful included, has the government deserves. But with a little goodwill all around, it's all very fine to boast a mutual support. You know, it's, he's preaching tolerance yeah. and the idea like... We should, you know, we, we, everybody should get what they need, right? Even after the Corley thing, yeah. right. rather than completely yeah. dismiss Corley out of hands, like, look, everybody should get what they need. $300 or yeah. whatever it is, right? Yeah. yeah. But it's terribly deflating because once again, this is his moment. This is the first time that he's able to express these things outside of his head. Yeah. And what Stevens is going to like, you know, yeah. dish his rejoinder is always going to be some sort of flat reductive statement. But, and then listen, as long as everyone works, yeah. they should... Count me out. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Count me out. I like it. Um, yeah, I, so I don't know. That That's a perfect example of why like, I like Bloom more and more and dislike Stephen more and how about, more. How about this? Uh, on 643, when he talks about a revolution must come on the due installments plan, yeah. it's a patent absurdity on the face of it to hate people because they live around the corner and speak sure. another vernacular, so to speak. And Stephen responds with, memorable bloody bridge battle in seven minutes war. You know, uh, again, kind of a dismissal, but is that a reference to the seven years? Is there seven years war? Uh, no, I think he's actually referencing street scuffles in Dublin based on regions, oh. like gang warfare. But I, there you go, right there, Dave, that part that you just quoted, the, uh, you know, because they live around the corner and speak another vernacular, so to speak, like that kind yeah. of clumsy style, which is Bloom speaking, you actually get repeated in the narrative itself, right? Yeah. So I think that's, we're supposed to catch little things like that. And then I love this, all the adverbs there. Yes, Mr. Bloom thoroughly agreed, entirely endorsing the remark that was overwhelmingly right, and the whole world was overwhelmingly full of that sort of thing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of payoffs, you know, in Eumaeus. You know, right. like, like I think the newspaper, you know, uh, article that comes next has incredible payoffs in it. But, but here we are, a chapter in which a newspaper is actually read and quoted, right? Talking about the yeah. strategies yeah. of delay and right. tedium, yeah. But yeah, the the whole obituary is is hilarious. Yeah, well, I thought about like a painful case too, and mm. you know how again this is a, you know a. Um, taking down of like mediocrity and you know how what we get as news is really not the real story that's out there we know all that's the case this is you know mostly fraudulent. <laughs> what day is the paper from the day before it's this, no it's this day well yeah the day before the day before yeah yeah because it's 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 exactly what he was talking about in eolus and then i love that they have the what bloom calls the bitch type the you know the names martin cunningham john power Ethan duff one eighth ardor dora dora dua dora like, like, how did that even get in there? <laughs> but uh, McCoy gets in, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so different, though, from Painful Case, because Painful Case, you're, you're getting, uh, you know, here's the surface facts, and what's missing is the, the, the emotions behind it and, and, and sort of the, the soul of the situation. Here you're just getting blatant buffoonery of the newspaper industry, <laughs> yeah. you know, just, just gurgitating anything at all. But right. exactly what you just said with painful case, right? That strategy I think is employed uh-huh. here writ large, like, right? Like we're supplying the emotion that is not there. Not, not in this particular okay, instance yeah, yeah. with the buffoonery from the newspaper, but you know, Joe, like what you were saying, like why, what is missing? What is getting sacrificed by stripping this of its sentimentality? Like we, we supply it. We're looking for that connection. Less so here because I think it's still developing, yeah. but Ithaca certainly. I get that in Ithaca, yeah. yeah. It, it, you have to dig a little to get it here. But I, I guess you're right. 
Um, all right, a couple more things I had. Uh, yeah, the Parnell thing comes up again. Um, and then I, I like the, you know, we saw this a little earlier, but Bloom as a political young man, that comes back, you know, the idea that he was a little more revolutionary, you know, those things. And, um, and then you get the vision I liked on, on 663 of Bloom seeing Molly and Steven together and those possibilities, you know, which is probably the most blatant we're going to get in terms of, you know, the, the synthesis that defines this chapter. This chapter. Yes. But I think looking ahead to Molly's chapter, you know, being the capstone of the novel, when she's visualizing all the possible ways of relationships with Stephen as a mother figure, as a lover, as a whatnot. I mean, she absolutely, like, we're, we're, it's starting here, but we're, we're going to get it. Like, in these three chapters, you get that. Yeah. Is, synth- is synthesis the right word? I guess I guess it is. I mean, the sense of... Oh, I think this is all kind of yeah. working on a Hegelian dialectic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not using that word loosely. Uh, that's how I think of it anyway. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the, the point of having the tripartite system? Yeah. yeah, And then you do, of course, get, you know, Blef, Bleefen, and Stoom yeah. at one point. Like, they actually, their names merge into the same name. And Elman, I think it's Elman, talks about how... The three of them form the Holy Trinity as yeah. well, right? That, that Molly's birthday is the same as Mary's, Mary, yeah. and um, and you know you have father son then, and I guess she's Holy Spirit slash Mary. I don't know whatever whatever the combination you want to make is, but uh, well. Yeah. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be the Holy Family? Wouldn't he be Joseph the Cuckold? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Oh, yeah, maybe. That's that, even better. That might be Simon. <laughs> Who's God then? <laughs> Joyce. Joyce. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. He's to redeem all of Ireland. That's pretty good. Yeah. I think I might be right. So, I don't know. But, but the idea that, that, you know, that seems to be Hegelian to me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, overall. And he also talks about the, the um, horse shit the three mm-hmm. even yeah. pops being a kind of anticlimax takedown of that notion, you know, yeah. always kind of creating like, the balance. And like we've seen in a couple of chapters, there's always like that, that, that last scene that's just kind of, in the end of wandering rocks. Yeah. Like a yeah. Right. An ass yeah. crack or something like that. Yeah. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's fun. I don't know. I, you have to, you have to play a little to get at that one, I guess, but it's fine with me. And that's all I have. That's it. Yeah. It's it. We got another like two and a half hours do, to kill. Look, man, I don't know. I ain't gonna kill you, man. I just, I mean, I get everything I, that was said today. I totally appreciate it. Just, you know, I don't know. I is this the time we talk about the T-shirt promotion then? Well, I was gonna say this is a great time to talk about that. So go ahead. You yes, this. So this is your project. <laughs> It's Dave's project. If you're listening to this podcast, if you've gotten this deep, as in 16 <laughs> chapters, one hour and 20-something minutes into that 16 in, chapter. Into a maze. Into a maze. And, and you're well, listening. 40, like 40 episodes of Joyce. Oh, yeah, my bad. I'm just yeah. I'm thinking very, very narrow here. No, we got to go. We got the full Joycey and uh, year. We got a whole Joycey calendar, essentially. We've got, we've got an entire year. <laughs> Um, and if you're listening right now, we will take the first five emails. If you email Joe. Email to Catalogs and Noise at Squarespace. I want people to go to the website. Okay, go to the uh, website. Twitter's fine. I, like, uh, I guess I'm going to show a little behind the curtain. Yeah. I'm not a social media person. I like, 
like you barely I, knew how to log into shit. Look, Dave made me do it, and I, I like you know, I love the Twitter people and the messages that we get. And I think it's great, but I just like can't be in front of a screen too long. I bug out, yeah. you know. But um, if they email the website, right, the Squarespace website, which I think we have on the page, right? Dave said that. Up, I right? think, yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, first five people they get a catalogs and noise t-shirt. T-shirt, yeah. That's gonna be sweet. Yeah. Are they cool? Uh, they don't exist yet, but they will by the time during, during the works. During, during the works. works. Yeah. I, I mean, like you guys usually put out cool shit, so I have faith. But you gotta let these people know so, that if they're listening to an hour and a half of fucking Umaeus, that they should get a cool T-shirt. Tom, do they have to email anything or just their address? I guess. No, they at least have to say, "Hey, I've been listening." Okay, they have to justify <laughs> Put the name, the address. <laughs> oh, how about T-shirt size? That would actually make oh, sense. Oh, T-shirt too. size. And, and in parentheses, they have to put, "I'm not a robot," so we know that they're real <laughs> yes. people. Yeah. yeah, could be a sex um, bot. Exactly. You got to so, watch out for them. Um, so they'll get them for free. Dave yeah. still has to pay half price, though, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Fuck right. We're not going to... We're new at the promotional Josh thing, so this could, this, this could be uh, really turn out bad. If, if I send you an email, do I get one? <laughs> no. No. Uh, you know, you'll never get a t-shirt. You friend is the organization. Much. All right. I like this promotion, so please email. Uh, we want to spread the word on Catalogs and Noise. <laughs> this brand and, is and, going and, places. And keep listening, because we're going to do this... Every so often, randomly, tucked inside of like an episode. Oh, we are? Oh, I think so. All right, You're great. buying the fucking t-shirts. <laughs> I, will, I will pay for the t-shirts. I have no problem with that. All right. Uh, next time, Ithaca. Cool. And uh, see you then.